But you'll need to figure out whether you're a conflict avoider, a conflict seeker, or a conflict minimizer. Are you getting any microphone up there? Because I don't, I don't feel like shouting this whole day. How do I turn this up? How's that? One, two, one, two, one, two. Ready? No, that's the picture on. No wonder nothing's happening. Anyone know anything about this? Ah, the volume. Ah, yeah. Good point. Well, I've got the volume on maximum. Is that any different? Is that better? Okay. I'm just trying to give an introduction here about conflict, uh, in case you missed that. And uh, you'll need to figure out whether you're a conflict avoider, a conflict seeker, or a conflict embracer. Kind of in the middle there. There are pluses and minuses to each of those. Uh, although, fortunately, we live in a culture where conflict minimisation is respected. Not all cultures are like that. Apparently, French novelist and playwright Alexander Dumas, uh, you may have heard of him, once had a heated quarrel with a rising young politician. This was the age of duelling, uh, which was thought at that time to be a sensible way to settle conflicts. The argument became so intense that a duel became inevitable, and since both men were superb shots, they decided to draw lots, and the loser agreeing to shoot himself. <laughs> Dumas lost. Pistol in hand, he withdrew in silent dignity to another room, closing the door behind him. The rest of the company waited in gloomy suspense for the shot that would end his career. It rang out at last. Friends ran to the door, opened it, and found Dumas smoking revolver in hand. Gentlemen, a most regrettable thing has happened, he announced. I missed. <laughs> now, the conflict that was provoked by Jesus through his symbolic actions and his prophetic claims also led inevitably to a showdown between him and the Jewish leadership of the time, a showdown that did, in this case, end in death. Jerusalem just was not big enough for the both of them. And if you are here with us last week, you remember that we looked at the first section of Matthew's version of the week that lies at the centre of the universe, chapters 21 and 22 of his Gospel, when Jesus comes riding into town on his moped, on his donkey, full of messianic echoes, claiming to be Israel's true and returning king, who'll defeat her enemies and restore her fortunes. But then his first messianic act is to symbolically judge the temple, to disrupt its sacrifices, and so to disrupt its very reason for being, effectively replacing it with himself as he heals those who come to him and imparts upon them the blessing of God. This twin claim, Messiah and Temple, King and focal point of God's blessing, then dominates the exchanges that he has with the full range of the Temple leadership that's mentioned right throughout chapters 21 and 22. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the whole wretched lot of them, until they are all silenced at the end of chapter 22 until they plot his doom at the beginning of chapter 26. Note that their silence, not just by clever repartee, although Jesus is brilliantly incisive, it's not just he can verbally outmatch them, it's by the power and righteousness of his claim consistently to be the king who comes after the final prophet, his reference to John the Baptist, to be the true son of the owner of the vineyard, the Lord God himself, the owner of Israel, to be the son of the king for whom the banquet is set, to be the son of God, no less, claiming a far higher loyalty 
than Tiberius Caesar, despite the lack of any inscription on coins. Nothing less than great David's greater son. Each of the episodes in chapters 21 and 22 reinforcing his claim to be the king, the Messiah, God's king, God's blessing. Now in chapters 23, 24 and 25, the second section of Matthew's final week for Jesus. Jesus turns much more explicitly from himself and his place in God's purposes to those who have placed themselves as his enemies, as his opponents, and therefore as the enemies of God. And his word to them is one of chilling and unremitting judgment. In chapter 23, he ruthlessly exposes the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees. In chapter 24, there is a stunningly, uh, stunning prophecy of the destruction of the temple within the lifetime of this generation to whom he's speaking. And in chapter 25, he instructs his disciples how they are to respond throughout this impending crisis. I want to look at each of those three chapters, the first one in much greater depth, and then the second two much more briefly. Firstly then, Jesus' denunciation of the scribes and the Pharisees, Matthew chapter 23. Pick it up at verse 1. I hope you have it there. Also, I hope you have your extensive outline, which I prepared for you. I actually did email something through to the uh, appropriate people, but it, my email has been on Big Pond, which can I recommend that if you're on Big Pond, you get out of there. They are useless. <laughs> Woe to Big Pond! <laughs> Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore do whatever they teach you and follow it, but do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the shoulders of others, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love to have the place of honour at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to have people call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all students. And call no one your father on earth, for you have one father, the one in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. Now Pharisees, uh, the subject of Jesus' denunciation here, have an appalling reputation today, largely on the basis of this chapter in particular and the Gospels in general, but in their own day they were hugely respected as stunningly committed Jews. The word itself, Pharisee, means the separated. Let me give you a bit of background on that. After being released from cap captivity uh, by King Cyrus of Persia in 538 BC, the Jewish people, as you may well know, returned en masse to Israel to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple to rebuild their lives. <coughs> but it wasn't long before the armies of the Greek Empire swept in and conquered Israel. And along with those armies came Greek culture, Greek morals, Greek values, Greek philosophy, all embodied in Greek language. And the influx of this new culture split Jewish culture at the time into several factions. On the one hand, there was... Uh, those who accepted all things Greek and who abandoned many of the ideas and principles in Judaism and traded them for Greek philosophy. Gone was a belief in resurrection, in the Messiah, in angels, in Satan, in miracles and a completely sovereign God. They rejected, in fact, the bulk of the Old Testament because it wasn't written by Moses. These were the Sadducees. You may recognise some of their teachings. 
also sometimes called the Herodians because they uh, crawled up to King Herod and his descendants. At the other end of the political spectrum were the Zealots. The Zealots were violently opposed to foreign rulers and openly advocated violent revolution and resistance. They were violent nationalists who would only accept Jewish independence or death and closely connected to them were the Pharisees, the separated. They turned to the Torah with a zeal that I suspect would put most of us to shame. They were preachers and leaders who taught and encouraged the people to live scrupulously by the law of God. They magnificently stood for what they believed and held fast to the, uh, their beliefs in the face of persecution. Now eventually the Greeks were driven out by Jewish revolutionaries under the leadership of Judas. The Hammer was his nickname, Maccabee. Uh, but the Pharisees continued on as the teachers and preachers of Judaism. But like so many victorious revolutionaries, <coughs> like so many victorious revolutionaries, as victors, having won the war, they were unable to win the peace. And they turned increasingly upon themselves and consumed themselves, increasingly finding people to define themselves over and against. They became arrogant and proud, which was, of course, itself a perversion of the very ideals they once defended. They developed an exaggerated formalism which insisted on details and ceremonial rather than the important aspects of the law. They focused on ritual rather than the relationship, form over content, appearance over reality. Let me give you an example. One commandment which showed how Israel was to honour God was to keep the Sabbath day holy. Now, the question of some people was, how do we do that? How do we keep the Sabbath day holy? The Pharisees said that it meant you couldn't do any work on the Sabbath, but when someone asked, well, what constitutes work? You've got to do some things, but how much is legitimate? So the Pharisees uh, got together and found that in the law, the Holy of Holies was placed 2,000 cubits away from the nearest home. Presumably it was therefore legitimate for people to walk 2,000 cubits, about one kilometre, to the temple on the Sabbath. And so that became a Sabbath day's journey. That was as far as you could go. The purpose was how to honour God. The answer was keep the Sabbath, but now that came to be defined as don't walk more than a kilometre. Now some people say, well, a kilometre is not very far to go. Is there anything that you can help us here with? So the Pharisees would say, well, don't measure the kilometre from, from, from your door, but from the edge of your property. That gives you a few more yards. People say, well, thanks for the extra, you know, five yards. <coughs> Can you give us any more? The Pharisees go, well, if before the Sabbath you go and place some of your property or some food beyond the boundary of your property, then you, consider, you can consider that as the end of your property and take your Sabbath day's walk from there. Okay, so you've got to, you know, you live in Glebe, as most sensible people do, and you go and, you know, park your car in Kalara or Janali, then you start from there and walk your kilometre. It may sound ridiculous, it's called boundary spirituality. Sorry, boundary spirituality. Boundary spirituality is when what constitutes a life pleasing to God is defined in terms of the edges, the boundaries, the maximums and the minimums rather than the centre. When it's 
spirituality defined in terms of what distinguishes you from other believers rather than what you have in common with them. The purpose of boundary spirituality is to separate you, to Pharisee you, to mark you out as special, special amongst God's people. Of course, there are lots of ways of doing it. Jesus highlights many here. In verse 4, there's the boundary spirituality of what is called talking a good game, of speaking of requirements for others, the speaking of which implies personal performance by yourself, but which is really lacking and instead has a function just of weighing down others with heavy burdens who can't disguise the fact that they're failing. In verses 5 to 9, there's the boundary spirituality of accruing honour to yourself by working the system. Uh, phylacteries were little leather or wooden boxes that were uh, strapped to the head that contained tiny fragments of paper with uh, the Torah written on them. Carrying broad phylacteries implied a broad obedience to God, deeply spiritual that you were, but could easily come to replace a broad obedience to God. It's much easier to write the law on a piece of paper and stick it in a box on your forehead than to write it in your heart. Or to have a large prayer shawl with long tassels that hung down, implying a large prayer life. But in the end, of course, easily substituting for having a prayer life. Having people greet you with respected titles, Rabbi, Father, Teacher, Reverend, Your Holiness, The Honourable, blah, blah, blah. You see how all these are about setting yourself apart, separating yourself, being a Pharisee by riding the boundary with massive focus. Verses 13 to 15 speak of the zeal of the Pharisees to make converts, massive evangelistic focus. And Jesus condemns it, merely functioning to lock people out of the kingdom of heaven by making them children of hell, here, children of Gehenna, the place of punishment, imitators of the Pharisees themselves. In verses 16 to 22, Jesus denounces boundary words, speaking bigger than you deliver, speaking bigger than your heart. Let me tell you about a man who spoke uh, freely, using Christian vocabulary. He talked about the blessing of the Almighty and the Christian confessions, which would become the pillars of a new government. He assumed the earnestness of a man weighed down with historic responsibility. He handed out pious stories to the press and especially to the church papers. He showed his tattered and well-read Bible and declared that he drew the strength for his great work from it as scores of pious people welcomed him as a man sent from God. Do you know who I'm talking about? Adolf Hitler, a master of the talk and symbols of boundary religion without inward reality. Listen to verses 23 to 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, three different herbs, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup, so that the outside may also become clean. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside look beautiful, but inside they are full of the bones of the dead and of all kinds of filth. So you also on the outside look righteous to others, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Apparently when the Bolshevik Revolution swept Russia in 1917, the religious hierarchy of one denomination was spending its time discussing the arrangements of colour on the robes of its clergy, literally as the revolution was taking place in the streets outside, tithing their mint and their dill and their cumin and neglecting everything that was important. Notice two crucial things about what Jesus says here. Firstly, there are weightier matters and there are lighter matters. There are sins that matter more and sins that matter less. There is a difference between sins. Jesus is utterly unequivocal and straightforward about that. And unless you understand that, unless you get that, you will almost certainly fall into a contemporary evangelical version of boundary spirituality. Now, there's some things that are not different about sins. All sin is sin, and all sin uh, uh, deserves the wrath of God. So at one level, all sins are the same. But Jesus says there are weightier and there are lighter matters. That does not mean that you don't worry about the lighter things. Jesus says you shouldn't neglect them. But there's only one thing worse than neglecting those lightweight matters of spirituality, and that's to neglect the heavyweight matters. That would be as stupid as straining out gnats, and which, believe it or not, was in fact an issue which provoked some discussion, namely whether you are permitted on the, on the Sabbath to scoop out a fly if it landed in your drink. And different sizes of flies were discussed. And how big was the fly that you were allowed to scoop out? A you know, big blowfly? No. But a little gnat? Yes, you could strain out a gnat, they said. The only thing worse than neglecting the lightweight matters of spirituality is to neglect the heavyweight matters. To strain out gnats but swallow a thumping great camel. Now just go, biggest animal you can imagine. I don't think they knew too much about elephants in Israel. You know, or big fish. Big camel. Just go with it for a moment. Big gob. Wow. That's what you're doing. Swallowing camels whole, shoving it limb by limb into your big gob. Camels, of course, being one of the most unclean animals there were. Now let me just pause here a moment and uh, make sure that we all get this. Right here, you have to define what you think are the weightier matters that Jesus refers to. And the way that you can tell what you really think are the weightier matters is by who you respect, who you look up to or are jealous of, who you think about a lot and wouldn't mind if you had their position or situation. Remember that Jesus says, where your treasure is, there also is your heart. That's a brilliant analysis, isn't it? It's not where your heart is, that's where you'll put your treasure. He says, where your treasure is, that'll tell you where your heart is. Well, it's the same here. Where your respect is, where your respect is, there also are your true values. 
Now, fast evangelicals, we value truth and Bible and teaching and learning incredibly, and it's all good. It really is all good. Just like keeping the Sabbath was all good for Israel. But I'll tell you one thing, we must not, we must not turn that into boundary spirituality by allowing it to cause us to neglect the weightier matters. And Jesus tells us what the weightier matters are, doesn't he? You saw it? Justice or righteousness and mercy and faith. And you've got to ask yourself the question, is it just because of nasty journalists? Or is there a reason why we evangelicals are not known that it's not a Pavlovian response when people think evangelical that they think righteousness and mercy and faith? I say that as much to myself as to anyone. But for us in the evangelical union, we need to hear the word of our Lord on this one. That's the first and crucial thing, that there are weightier matters and there are lightweight matters. But notice also the second thing, that all these lightweight things, all the tithing and straining and so on, are outward realities which can be seen and duly appreciated and noticed by others. But as ever, what Jesus is after is the heart, the inward realities, the inside of the cup, that it should be clean rather than full of the bones of spiritual death and moral filth, hypocrisy and lawlessness. For see, the thing about boundary spirituality is that it produces terrible, terrible distortions in the heart. It is possible to think that you are becoming more and more spiritual when in fact you are becoming more and more smug and judgmental. Uh, Winston Churchill told that a political opponent of his by the name of Cripps, uh, who was widely disliked for his smug self-righteousness, had just stopped smoking cigars, commented, too bad, those cigars were his last contact with humanity. He had Phariseed himself, separated himself off in every way from all people. Another time, apparently the story goes, Churchill saw Cripps passing by and remarked, There, but for the grace of God, goes God. (laughs) Think about it. Now, I want to read to you an extract from a book by a uh, bit of a uh, teacher of mine at the moment, John Ortberg, called The Life You've Always Wanted. Barney's people will be somewhat sick of this by now. They've heard it a couple of times. Uh, So you can just tune out now, or alternatively, uh, reflect even further on your own life. Uh, Choose which of those two you'd prefer to do. Yes, the reflection. Um... I think it speaks very powerfully of contemporary evangelical Pharisees. So listen to this. Hank, as we'll call him, was a cranky guy. He did not smile easily and when he did, the smile often had a cruel edge to it, coming at someone else's expense. He had a knack for discovering islands of bad news in oceans of happiness. He would always find a cloud where others saw a silver lining. Hank rarely affirmed anyone. He operated on the assumption that if you compliment someone, it might lead to a swelled head, so he worked to make sure everyone stayed humble. Here's what is a ministry of cranial downsizing. I've heard someone say recently they have the gift of rebuke. I think their middle name was Hank. 
His native tongue was complaint. He carried judgment and disapproval the way a prisoner carries a ball and chain. Although he went to church his whole life, he was never unshackled. A deacon, a leader in the church, asked him one day, Hank, are you happy? Hank paused to reflect and replied without smiling, Yeah. Well, tell your face, the deacon said. (laughs) But so far as anybody knows, Hank's face never did find out about it. Occasionally, Hank's joylessness produced unintended joy for others. There was a period of time when his primary complaints centred around the music in the church. It's too loud, Hank protested to the staff, the deacons, the ushers, and eventually the innocent visitors to the church. We finally had to take Hank aside and explain that complaining to complete strangers was not appropriate and that he'd have to restrict his laments to a circle of intimate friends. And that was the end of it, so we thought. A few weeks later, a secretary buzzed me on the intercom to say that an agent from OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, was here to see me. I'm here to check out a complaint, he said, as I tried to figure out who on the staff had called OSHA over a church problem, he began to talk about decibel levels at airports and rock concerts. Excuse me, I said, are you sure this was someone on the church staff that called you? No, he explained. If anyone calls, whether or not they work here, we're obligated to investigate. Suddenly the light dawned. Hank had called OSHA and said the music at my church is too loud. And they sent a federal agent to check it out. By the rest of, by uh, this time, the rest of the staff had gathered him off to see the man from OSHA. We don't mean to make light of this, I told him, but no, nothing like this has ever happened around here before. Don't apologise, he said. Do you have any idea how much ridicule I faced around my office since everyone discovered I was going out to bust the church? <laughs> Sometimes Hank's joylessness ended in comedy, but more often it produced sadness. His children did not know him. His son had a wonderful story about how he met his wife at a dance, but he never told his father because Hank did not approve of dancing. Hank could not effectively love his wife or his children or people outside his family. He was easily irritated. He had little use for the poor, a casual contempt for those whose accents or skin pigment differed from his own. Whatever capacity he might once have had for joy or wonder or gratitude had atrophied. He critiqued and judged and complained and his soul got smaller each year. Hank was not changing. He was once a cranky young guy and he grew up to be a cranky old man. But even more troubling than his lack of change was the fact that nobody was surprised by it. It was as if everybody simply expected that his soul would remain withered and sour year after year, decade after decade. No one seemed bothered by the condition. It was not an anomaly that caused head-scratching bewilderment. No church consultants were called in. No emergency meetings were held to probe the strange case of this person who followed the church's general guidelines for spiritual life and yet was non-transformed. The church staff did have some expectations. We expected that Hank would affirm certain religious beliefs. We expected that he would attend services, read the Bible, support the church financially, pray regularly and avoid certain sins. In other words, be a good evangelical. But here's what we didn't expect. We didn't expect that he would progressively become the way Jesus would be if he were in Hank's place. We didn't assume that each year would find him 
a more compassionate, joyful, gracious, winsome personality. We didn't anticipate that he was on his way to becoming a source of delight and courtesy overflowed with rivers of living water. And so we were not shocked when it didn't happen. We would have been surprised if it did. Because by and large, we do not expect people to experience ongoing transformation. We are not led to question whether perhaps the standard prescriptions for spiritual growth being given in the church are truly adequate to lead people to a transformed way of life. That's a long story. And you may see something of Hank in yourself. My point is this. What is our spiritual culture in EU? What is your spiritual culture in your church? How boundary-defined are we? What are the marks of Christian living that command our respect as a culture? Is it a certain facility with the Bible? Is it a particular commitment to going to the maximum number of meetings? Is it formal leadership responsibility within the group? Is it being on the way to full-time ministry? All of these things are good and right. All of them, without exception. But in themselves, they are not the weightier matters of the law. In themselves, they are not the heart. In themselves, actually, they don't constitute true evangelicalism. We need to be a culture that makes boundary spirituality seem odd and superficial, which is what it is. For the Pharisees, though, it was a way of life a way which they would not not give up, even if it meant putting out the light that exposed them. Read on to chapter 23 and verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the character of boundary individuals. They kill the prophets and stone those whom God sends to them. And it's for this reason that Jerusalem will be judged, or as Jesus says to her, that her house will be left to her bare, desolate, abandoned. Now this then leads directly into the next chapter. For for what is the house of Jerusalem, which is currently occupied but will be abandoned in the judgment of God? Of course, it's God's house, his, His temple, His temple which Jesus has just symbolically and prophetically judged, saying, My house shall be called a house of prayer. And so in chapter 24... Jesus speaks of the inner logic of this judgment, which, as I explained at annual conference, I think is exclusively about judgment upon uh, Jerusalem and the temple, not about Jesus' second coming. That the destruction of this temple, with not one stone left on top of another, is nothing less than part and parcel of his own vindication as Messiah, the anointed one of Israel, Israel's representative, the one who sums up Israel in himself, So that when he is vindicated, Israel is vindicated in him. That when he comes on the clouds to the Most High, quote, unquote, from Daniel 7, 
that is Israel, the saints of the Most High, coming on the clouds to God. In other words, it's a zero-sum game here. You push down and it comes up. If, if Jesus is going to be the Messiah, that means Israel's leaders cannot be her leaders. If Jesus is the place where God's blessing is to be found, that means the temple will not be the place where God's blessing is to be found. It has to be one or the other. Jesus or the temple. And just as this town ain't big enough for Jesus and the alternative leadership, so it's not big enough for Jesus and the alternative temple. Essential to his triumph and vindication as Messiah and the place and source of the blessing of God is the destruction of the temple. And so Jesus announces its fate. But notice a couple of things about this. First, this is going to be a curious kind of victory. For we know, and more importantly Jesus knows, that what will happen to him in Jerusalem is not some grand triumph in any obvious sense. Rather, he'll be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death. And he'll be handed over to the Gentiles who will flog him and mock him and crucify him. In other words, whatever vindication and victory this is going to be, it is going to be a strange one. And we'll come back to that next week as we look at the lead up and to and then the death of Jesus. But secondly, notice what Jesus says throughout chapter 24 as you read it, is that the response of the disciples is not to be the response of so many nationalists throughout the ages to defend when they are attacked, to fight fire with fire, to live by the sword and to die by the sword. Throughout chapter 24, Jesus says, don't follow other messiahs. We know now that Messiah means not some other claimant to be God so much as some other claimant to be king. Don't follow other kings, other revolutionary leaders. Don't follow them out to battle. Instead, when you see the vultures or the eagles gathered, that is the Roman standard, make like Monty Python and run away! (laughs) Run for the hills, says Jesus. Don't fight because to fight like the world is to lose. That's the negative, chapter 24. In chapter 25 then, Jesus goes on to speak about the positive. If the disciples are not to fight to defend Jerusalem when it is to be destroyed, what are they to do? Well, they are to remain alert and faithful. That would be like the five wise bridesmaids that he speaks of. Now, I take weddings and uh, I've had usually two bridesmaids in the bridal parties that I deal with. Uh, occasionally three, sometimes four. Recently was at a wedding which had some bridesmaids and a bridesman. Uh, I don't recommend it myself, but you feel free. Mix and match. It's quite, you know. But ten bridesmaids, frankly, is a little over the top. Well, here are five dumb, dumb ones that, frankly, you could have done without and five smart ones. And they, in the culture of the day, were awake at midnight when, uh, or ought to have been awake at midnight when the bridegroom was to come to them and make sure that there was oil in their lamps, that they're ready for the time of their visitation, ready on the day of trouble. They're to make sure that they're not like the other foolish bridesmaids, that is, unbelieving Israel, who cannot see the time of their visitation. Or again, in the second of the parables in verse uh, chapter 25, they're to be unlike the servant who's failed to be faithful to the master, and so he has sat on his talent. Talent not meaning... Uh, ability or capacity to do something, talent meaning millions upon millions of dollars. 
I think it's 60 years worth of average weekly earnings. Okay? He's been given two and a half million bucks. And what he's done with it is stick it under the bed. Just as Israel has done. Instead, the disciples are to invest it wisely to live faithfully. They're to be like sheep in the third of the stories rather than goats. Pick it up at chapter 25 and verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep at His right hand and the goats at the left. Then the King will say to those at His right hand, Come, you that are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave Me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. You did not live a boundary life. In other words, Jesus is saying as the crisis approach, and of course for us the crisis is not the destruction of the temple of AD 70, but the crisis of the judgment of God in our own lives, Jesus says we too are to be faithful to live lives not on the boundary but at the centre full of love for the King. And how are we to do that? Truly I tell you just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family you did it to me. As we wait we too are to be people of justice righteousness and mercy and faith. We're to be people of the heart who love God in Christ and love our neighbour. We're not to be characterised by boundary spirituality, which is so easy, it's, it's so visible, it's so attractive in its own way, isn't it? And sometimes even so rewarding, the kudos that you can fairly easily accumulate for yourself. We're not to be spiritually inauthentic, trying to appear what we are not, to become judgmental or exclusive or proud. We're to become people who are increasingly approachable, as Jesus was. Not growing weary of pursuing spiritual growth. I want to finish by reading you a story about a stunning moment of justice and mercy and faith, this time from Christian writer Tony Campolo, uh, who was travelling, who was jet-lagged in... Uh, the wrong time zone and he wandered into a low-end restaurant what they call a diner in America at three in the morning. Now the only other customers there were a group of prostitutes who had finished for the night one of whom named Agnes mentioned that it was her birthday tomorrow and that she'd never had a birthday party. Uh, Tony Campolo found out from the owner of the diner, Harry uh, that each night these prostitutes came to the diner after their business hours. And Campolo asked if he could come back the next night and throw a party. Harry, the guy behind the bar, said, OK, but only on the condition that his wife do the cooking and that he be allowed to make the cake. And I pick up the story here. At 2.30 the next morning, I was back at the diner. I picked up some crepe paper decorations at the store and had made a sign out of big pieces of cardboard that read, Happy Birthday, Agnes. The woman who did the cooking must have gotten the word out in the street because by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. It was wall-to-wall prostitutes and me. (laughs) At 3.30, the door of the diner swung open and in came Agnes and her friend. I had everybody ready and when they came in, we all screamed, Happy Birthday. 
Never have I seen a person so flabbergasted. Her mouth fell open and her legs buckled. When we finished singing, her eyes moistened. When the cake was carried out, she started to cry. Harry gruffly mumbled, Blow out the candles, Agnes. Come on, if you don't blow out the candles, I'm going to have to blow out the candles. (laughs) Finally, he did. The cutting of the cake took even longer. Cut the cake, Agnes. We all want some cake. (laughs) Look, Harry, is it okay if I keep the cake a little while if we don't eat it right away? Sure, if you want to keep it, keep it. Take the cake home if you want. Can I? Anyway, she walks out the door with the cake just to her house nearby. I'll be back soon, she says. She carried that cake out the door like it was the Holy Grail. We stood there motionless, a stunned silence in the place. Not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, What do you say? We pray. Looking back on it now, it seems more than strange for a sociologist to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But then it just felt like the right thing to do. I prayed for Agnes for her salvation, that her life would be changed, that God would be good to her. When I finished, Harry leaned over the counter and said with a trace of irritation, Hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? In one of those moments, when just the right words came, I answered, and listen to this, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. Harry waited a moment and almost sneered as he answered, No, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. Campolo comments, Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all love to join a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning? That's the kind of church Jesus came to create. I don't know where we got the other one that's so prim and proper. But anyone who reads the New Testament knows Jesus loved to lavish grace on the left out and the used up and the put down. The sinners loved him because he parted with them. The lepers of society found in him someone they could eat and drink with. This is the church, the way it's supposed to be. Now for us the issue is not nearly or usually so dramatic as a diner full of prostitutes. It'll be much harder, actually. It'll be the ordinary, dreary people like each other, with all our foibles and weaknesses and selfishnesses and sins, and those in our tutes and our classes. But I suspect that there are many, many people here at Sydney University and in your neighbourhoods that are like Harry. If they see Christ in us like this, they would be stunned. For you see, it is God who is in the business of exalting us for what is in our hearts. That's why we live at the centre and not at the boundary. The most important text in all of this is in chapter 23, I think it's verse 12. Do you believe this? That all who exalt themselves will be humbled and there are many ways open to you to find that you can exalt yourself by but all who humble themselves, who live life at the centre, not at the boundary, will be exalted. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you would grant to us such a full measure of your spirit that we would, not neglecting the lesser matters, 
be those who major on the majors and are people full of justice and mercy and faith. For your own great name's sake we pray. Amen.